take that Bible or the Bible that you have that you brought with you, and let's open to Mark chapter 5. I want to talk to you tonight about a guy named Robert Wadlow. Robert Wadlow had big shoes. You know him. You don't know him. He was the tallest man to ever live, according to one source. And the size of his shoe was a 37 double A. It would be like this, trying to fit into this big shoe. That's how big it was. Now, it wasn't that big. You're right. Ha. Can't fool you. Can't fool you. But it would feel like, you know, trying to walk in those shoes or sleep in those shoes or whatever. I think that's what it would feel like. But that's kind of where that phrase comes from. Big shoes to fill. It'd be hard to walk in a size 37. Uh, It's that phrase means like just having like a big task in front of you, a big job where you're like, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. That feels like big, big shoes to fill. Or I'm trying to do a job that somebody who did it right before me just did it really, really good. I'm, I'm concerned about it. I'm nervous about it. It feels like big shoes to fill. And I, I can't imagine walking in those giant shoes or whatever, just like I can't imagine doing a lot of jobs. It could be tough to be the, you know, the president or a brain surgeon. I feel like those would feel like big shoes to fill. Wouldn't want to, like, I don't know, work on a submarine, be in charge of that, or, like, be in charge of, like, a nuclear power plant. That seems like big shoes to fill. Um, be the guy who cleans the stadium after the Dodger game. Probably just a big task in front of that guy. I don't know. It feels like big jobs. But those jobs seem scary and tough, and you've got other jobs you can think of. You need help to face those, some kind of confidence or some kind of support to help you just deal with it. Big shoes to fill, you get it. Sometimes, I think in a very similar way, being a Christian can feel the same way. Following Christ can feel like a situation where I just have big shoes to fill. It's tough. It's a life that seems hard, that seems overwhelming to try to live like other Christians around me that I'm watching do it so well. They're, they're living like a Christian so well. And we kind of know I'm just, I'm not really close to that. Like, I can't live like a Christian the way that my mom does or the way that my dad does or the way that I see some older person at church live like a Christian. It just seems too hard. I'm nowhere close to where even Jesus wants me to be. Those shoes are just too big. So I'm hesitant to to be a Christian or it feels too hard to live like a Christian. So what can help us kind of deal with this feeling, this sense of being overwhelmed by, by wanting to follow Christ or realizing how difficult it can be to follow Christ? What can help us with the challenges that are certain to come if we are following Jesus? What can comfort us for the things that Jesus calls us to do? I want to encourage you to, if you haven't already, just again, turn to Mark chapter 5. Here we have a story about Jesus, the power of Christ on display to help us deal with just such a question. How do we deal with life when it just feels like these shoes are too big? Living like a Christian, too difficult. 
By the time we come to Mark 5, Mark's telling a story, and he tells it like he's in a hurry to get there. Mark's favorite word in the world is immediately, and he uses it a bunch in his gospel. Immediately this happened, then this happened, immediately this happens, immediately all the time. All these things are happening, and and Mark's not really interested in all the details that some of the other gospel writers are interested in. He's kind of after the bigger story, and he's like hustling to get there, hustling to... I believe, make it obvious who Jesus is. He wants us to know, even in the very beginning of chapter one, Jesus is God's son. He is the savior who's come to bring the gospel. This is the one that people have been waiting for. He's here to call sinners and to bring forgiveness to all who will believe and repent. Mark's just, this is is who Christ is. And he's moving fast to help us know this, that that this news that Jesus was, was coming with, it was so attractive to so many, especially because of what Jesus was doing. The way he was healing people. He's just drawing these, these huge crowds. And some people in those crowds, they're hearing Jesus' message and they are, they're listening and they're responding and they're believing and they're repenting and, and they're following Christ. And Jesus calls some of them to be his followers, to be his disciples. And so following Christ, Jesus knows that they have this big job in front of them. They have this big task that that they're going to need to do. After Jesus would go to the cross and die and then be resurrected, he knew he was going to call his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that was just going to be this big task. That was going to feel like big shoes to, to, to fill. And so he knew that it wasn't going to be easy, that it was going to be overwhelming, and they would need help to do this, help to understand this kind of hard-to-forget example of why they don't need to be afraid to follow Christ and why they don't need to be afraid to do what he asks them to do. If you're hesitant to follow Jesus or you think life It's just going to be too hard to be a Christian or or too difficult that God might not be able to do all the things that he says he can do in here. If, If you're thinking that way or that none of this really seems that worth it, you need to know that that people have been asking those questions since they first started to follow Jesus. You're you're in good company. Jesus had disciples who had you know, similar thoughts kind of rolling around in their heads and hearts, these, these questions and these fears. And Jesus knew that once he was gone, that those questions and those fears, those were only going to get escalate, only going to get worse. Is following Christ worth it? So Jesus wants to, to show them and teach them and instill in his disciples like permanently who he is and the kind of power that he actually has. And that with him, they don't need to fear those moments where they feel like, you know, these shoes are just too big to fill. And God wants to do the same in your life. He wants you to know without a doubt how how powerful Christ is. He wants you to know this, to trust him, that you have nothing to fear and no reason to worry, no reason to doubt because Christ is so powerful. And this is our, our Savior. So Mark, by the time we come to chapter 5, Mark does something unique to, to show this. 
Jesus is showing his disciples and Mark wants people who read the story of Christ to get these three stories in a row to show how powerful Jesus actually is. And he's trying to take away doubt and infuse us with trust and hope in Christ. And the first story, which we're not going to look at, but it's one that you're familiar with, Jesus' power over nature, how he calms the, the storm, the sea. Him and his disciples are in the boat and they're being attacked by the sea and Jesus is asleep. You know the story. They yell at him because he's catching a nap and he wakes up and he says, you know, peace be still. And immediately this insane storm, like a giant hand just pushes down on it and it's just whisper quiet. And the disciples are actually now more afraid of what just happened than the actual storm itself. Massive storm almost ends their life, but now they're wondering, like, only God has that kind of power. And they're starting to see this. They're starting to grasp that God's in their boat. This Jesus is, is God. And it freaked them out. It says how afraid they were. But that's just kind of the first part of the story. The second story, which we'll look at tonight, it's again here to help us see that Jesus has power over the supernatural. Another kind of really powerful, really evil, and, and these demons, this power that Jesus has over them. And, and I want to focus on this tonight. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. This is Jesus and the disciples, okay? When he got out of the boat, so in the boat, sea, crazy, crazy storm, Jesus calms it. Here we go. He got out of the boat. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly. Night and day he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do you have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what's your name? And he said to him, my name's Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of pigs or swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away, and they reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. 
As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him, begging him that he might accompany him. And he, Jesus, did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. What you need to know about this story of power between Jesus and this demon-possessed kind of boogeyman here is that this story, unlike other stories of fantasy and power and magic and whatever else, this one's real. I know we like those stories, but this isn't Narnia. This isn't Harry Potter. This is a real story. And I want to go through this story and then try to help us think about what it means for us today. And we'll kind of chop it up like this, the man and the miracle and then the aftermath. Okay, so first, the man. Verse 1, the disciples are probably pretty happy to get out of the boat. We have to remember the whole like almost died in the storm thing. They're alive and they come to shore and, you know, they probably kiss the ground or whatever. But because of where they are, we know and we're supposed to know that they're probably not exactly thrilled. Yes, they're alive, but they're in a place that's not ideal for a bunch of Jewish people. This is a Gentile place, a place with people who didn't care at all about the Jewish religion of Judaism. Jews cared a lot about cleanliness and stuff like don't touch pigs. And now they're in a place where that's not only not cared about, but a dude will have 2,000 pigs. So this is not a place where they're comfortable. A lot of bacon, by the way. Not a place where they're comfortable and you know, now not only did they deal with that storm, but as they come ashore, there's this man with, who's clearly demon-possessed just running at Jesus the moment they get out of the boat. And, and here's this picture of the man. Again, a real man, not a video game where you shoot zombies and, you know, monsters. This is a real guy who had parents and brothers and sisters. Probably people knew who this guy was before this happened. And Mark tells us this. He has an unclean spirit and he's, he's demonized. He's under the control and influence of an evil spirit. In verse 3, he lives among the tombs, a place where, in case you need reminded, people don't live. That's a place for dead people. But that's where he lives and he's out of control and people are trying to bind him with chains, and, but he would just tear them apart. He would break them. He'd rip them to pieces. So he's crazy strong and also just plain crazy. And he would run around night and day among the tombs, howling at the moon like a monster, like an animal, and cutting himself with rocks like a, a, a guy out of his mind. And this man had totally become this monster. You see those three negative words there in verse 3 and 4. No one could bind him, not with a chain. No one had strength to subdue him. Just like this rhythmic reminder of how powerful this guy is. And this is power that I think brought frustration upon the community, upon the people who knew him and lived around him, this irritation. And I think they knew him enough to not want to kill him, but chain him up. 
so he wouldn't hurt himself anymore and wouldn't scare the kids. They had tried everything. They're trying to, to subdue him, to control him, but he's just too powerful. They bring chains and more chains and bigger chains, and he just rips them right off. Notice what it says at the end of verse four. Did you see it? No one had the strength to subdue him, to stop him. No one has the kind of power it takes to deal with this man. And so he's turned into this scary monster, just too much power. They can't stop him. They, you know, stay away from him. They whisper about him, tell jokes about him. Junior hires would go out and see how close they could get to the cemetery before they got scared and ran away. Like they play games and they poke fun at him and parents would use the monster man to get their kids to do stuff. You know, brush your teeth or that's what you're going to turn into. Eat your veggies or you'll be like that guy. That's what they would say. Probably. (laughs) Our text even tells us that he's a bloody mess. He's cutting himself. He's just unloved and unwelcome. He's in just pain and he's under the control of these spirits. This is a, a picture of something that's evil and it's, It's sad. He's like a dead man, but he just can't do anything about it. And and even Luke records that he wasn't wearing clothes to even complete the picture. Dirty and bloody and smelly and naked and just a wild beast. He would have been a really scary sight, honestly. Easy to read about, but it would have been scary to see this man. And he's sort of driven to the very bottom of existence. But then the miracle. Here comes verse 6. Finally, a day when someone could approach this man without chains. There had never been anybody able to, to stop him or subdue him or control him. But he's going to meet someone far more powerful. Demons kind of meet deity here. He, says, verse 6, he comes kind of running at Jesus, I think meant to be scary, like attacking Jesus like that storm was. But he's like the storm, no match for Christ. And as he gets close, he does what everyone does who knows who Jesus is. His face meets the ground. And he bows and he falls before Christ and he shouts this phrase, you know, what have you to do with me, Jesus? What do we have to do with each other, son of the most high God? Don't torment me, please. These these demons know that that Jesus is the rightful heir of creation. I want to say they know their Bible, but that sounds weird. But they know the truth about Christ. Colossians 1.16, Jesus is the rightful heir. Jesus is king, Revelation 17, 14. He's the one who will rule and reign over everything for all time, Revelation 11. He's the one who's going to judge evil and the demons, the angels who fell from heaven to follow, to follow Satan. They know they're going to be judged by Christ, James two nineteen, And so they know who he is. And Jesus asks them, you know, this man, you know, what is your name speaking to this demon? And they replied, legion for we're many. And that word legion, it's, if you've heard this before, you know, it's, it's meant to strike a chord of the legion army in the, in the, in the Roman legion, a band of soldiers. And 
Maybe that's 2,000 soldiers, could be 6,000 soldiers. But I don't think Mark's trying to emphasize a number here. This is more about power. A legion of the Roman army was powerful. It was organized and efficient and incredibly strong and, and difficult to overcome with all its strength. And that word legion is meant to make you go, oh, he's just really strong. Probably multiple demons, but very, very strong. And they had divided and dominated this man and controlled him because of the power that they had. And so he says, legion, we're, we're many. But notice verse 10, this powerful, evil spirit that no one had been able to control. He's begging Jesus. He's imploring him. Don't send us away. They beg Jesus to to send them into these pigs. Please, Jesus. And so what, you know, can't be contained by all these people who have tried. Dozens, maybe hundreds. I don't know. It's, It's a lot. Now this this powerful thing has to beg Jesus. He knows he's outmatched in power to the level that he has to grovel. Please. Must not even be close, huh? And so Jesus, the one with the most power, notice it says he gives permission in verse 13. You don't ask permission from someone unless they have more power than you. And the evil spirit comes out. They go into the pigs, all 2,000, bacon tragedy. And here's the aftermath, verse 15. Very similar. The people respond just like the disciples do in that boat. The word spreads. They hear about the pigs. They hear about the, the monster man now in his right mind. He's clothed. He's calmed. He's relaxed. He's probably smiling, speaking gently. He's in his right mind. No more wild man, no howling, no more scaring people. He's just completely transformed. And what does it say in verse 15 about the people? They were afraid. They were terrified. They were frightened. And the response of the crowd gets even more strange. In verse 17, now they're begging Jesus for something. But did you see what it is? Verse 17, They want Jesus to leave. Are they mad about their pigs? Probably some of them are. They lost some money that day. But they were delivered from that demon-possessed kind of nightmare of the man. But I think like the disciples, the people now see something much more clearly that they didn't before. Something they had only guessed at now is just on display. Jesus is powerful and they're scared and freaked out that this uncontrollable man who had plagued their lives for so long is now just perfectly calm, just like the storm. And the one and only one who can be responsible is Jesus. And they are freaked out because they know that he has the kind of power that they can't even begin to comprehend. They're so terrified of his power. And notice in verse 18, the man who'd been delivered sees Jesus getting into that boat and he goes to him and he implores, he begs Jesus too, and, but he just wants to be with Jesus. Mark uses that word a lot here. I think that's on purpose. 
one of those repetition of word things that, that really matters. Everyone's begging Jesus. And you know what Jesus never does? Beg. <laughs> Clearly the one with the most power here, Christ on display. And, and the words that Jesus often uses for come and follow me are the words of now this man in his right mind. He says, I want to follow you. I want to be with you. I want to go with you. This man, aware of what Jesus had done for him, aware of that miraculous change that had taken place, he must believe he'd been delivered from something pretty awful and, and horrible to have this kind of reaction. Jesus, forget my life. I just want to be with you. He, he, he's convinced of that, living like that. This shattered life just now restored. And Jesus says, no but for a really good reason. He wants something else from this man, to go home, to tell people what, what Christ had, had done. In verse 20, we get the report. That's exactly, precisely what happens. He goes to those 10 cities. That's what Decapolis is. And he tells everyone the good news of what Jesus had done. And he tells it everywhere he went. And I think his story is one that's so well known that even in the capitalists, they would know of the boogeyman, of the man in the tombs. And now they get to see him. They get to see his scars from all the places where he cut himself. And they get to see him, you know, not dirty anymore and not crazy and, you know, whatever, a fresh cut and some new sandals and looking good. He's delivered. He's transformed. Completely new man. That's why it says at the end, everyone's amazed. Everyone marveled. Everyone's just like, what? Who could do this? It's the second in a three-part kind of trilogy here. Three stories that proclaim the power of Jesus. He's more powerful than the scariest storm these guys had ever seen. He's way more powerful than the scariest man they had ever seen. And by the time we come to the third story where Jesus raises someone from the dead, we're like, oh, that's about right. It seems about right. That makes sense. Jesus has power over death. So much application in a passage like this. You know, how do we respond? What do we do with this? And I think first, for us, it should be what it's meant to be. This reminder of Jesus and his power, oh, it's incredibly comforting for those who follow Christ to know that this is who our Savior is. You know, even by junior high, living like a Christian is not easy. There's, there's trial, there's trouble, there's, there's challenges. It, it's, a, it's not an easy life. It's not. But isn't it good to know that you're, that your God, the one that you're living for, has this kind of power. Paul writes in Romans 8.31, well, what should we say about this? If God's for us, who can be against us? Another way of saying it, like, if, if this is our God, what do we have to worry about? Yeah, these are big shoes to fill, but you know what? Not with God. I can do what he asks me to do. I can live the way he calls me to live. I can do it because of how powerful he is. And I also want us to think about this. Uh, you know, what Jesus does to this man, it's exactly what the gospel says it can do. 
Ephesians chapter two says, and you're dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, I'm skipping to verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, can make us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. I, I wonder if the demoniac or this man of the garrison, I wonder if that's how you think of your life without Christ. Should be. There's a picture of somebody without Christ. Living in the tombs. Dead. That's where we are without Christ. Desperately in need of someone more powerful than me to, to, to set us free. You can't fix it. You can't free yourself from this. Your friends can't fix it. Your, your family, your, the people who know you and love you, they can't do anything about it either. <laughs> they can't subdue it. You're a slave to this evil, to this sin, and you just don't know anyone powerful enough to set you free. And yet here is Jesus offering salvation, offering this gift through faith to you, granting life to those who are dead, setting you free from a nightmare you can't even realize. Truly, this guy receives an incredible gift, and, and so do we in the Gospels, saved through faith. It has, it has nothing to do with us. This is all Jesus. What a gift. And with his words, he just, he just changes this man. And he can do it for you today as well. He's still doing that. He's still changing lives. Jesus is still bringing life where people are, are dead, just like this demoniac. And it's incredible transformation, just like this demoniac, just like this man. Crazy and out of control. And now just, you know, the same, insane guy, calm and a different person. And I think even as we think about how he reacts to Jesus, it's the same reaction that we have when we're given new life in Christ. What did he do? He just wants to be near Christ. He just wants to follow him. He doesn't care about anything else. He doesn't care about what's, what he had left in the Decapolis. He doesn't care about any of it. Christ, I just want to follow you. Where you're going, I'm going. But he's also willing to do what Jesus asks him to do. I need you to do this. I need you to, I need you to tell people about me. And so often when we get saved, we're like, I wish he would just take me to heaven. But in a similar way, Christ says, no, no, I need you to tell the gospel to the world. And we should have that same kind of reaction. I've been saved miraculously and I want to do what Jesus wants me to do. Young people, as I think about the sins that are holding some of you captive, you just need to know that no matter what it is, no matter how powerful that sin is, that thing that you can't stop maybe giving your thoughts to or your time to, or that sin that you think, I'm, I'm keeping this a secret from everybody. Nobody knows about it. I just want you to know the power of Christ that can set you free from it. That sin is no match for Jesus. Christ is far too powerful. And he can set you free from that sin. That sin just no match for Jesus. Jesus' words in the Bible, they still have authority. 
And we need to do what he said back in Mark 1. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. Believe in what? Believe that Christ died on the cross for you. You leave your sin behind and you want to follow him. That's where the gospel begins. And there's no reason to doubt in the power of Christ to delay belief. No reason not to trust him with our future. And yes, there's going to be moments when those shoes just look big. They feel big. Christ is asking me to do something that's tough here. But again, with with Jesus, those shoes are not too big. They're not. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your word that shows us the love that you have for us and the gift that it is to follow you. Thank you for showing us how much power you have, that there's nothing in this world that can compete with you. Father, for those who haven't put their faith in you, I pray that this story would draw them to you. God, would you be gracious and merciful like you were to that man? God, merciful to to these students who also just need you and your power, your gospel. Great truth here, Lord, for those that you have saved, for those who do follow you, would you fill us with joy? Would, Would you give us that desire to follow you more, to see not only how powerful you are, but to just to see the comfort that that comes with that comfort that we need for, for every day. God, I ask that you give us a greater understanding of the power that, that you possess to bring change into our lives. And I just, I'm going to pray that that would change us even this very night. God, thanks for our church. Thanks for a place where we can be with friends and hear your word. And God, I pray that you would continue to do what you do, that you would draw people and save souls. We pray in Christ's name, amen.